Welcome to the Exponential Podcast, where we help you live the life of a multiplier. Our mission is to empower you to take your life, leadership, and impact to the next level. In each episode, we'll explore strategies and insights to help you multiply your influence and calling in the world for Jesus. Today's episode is from Exponential 2023's Global Conference in Orlando, where we brought together some of the world's top leaders and innovators to share their insights and expertise. To experience more conversations like this, be sure to check out our upcoming events at Exponential.org. Well, hey, good morning, friends. I know uh, it's not quite yet time yet. Well, I guess we're coming up on it, but uh, we might jump into it a little bit early uh, just to make sure we get through all of the content and get out of here uh, in time for our last session. And again, if you've been to Expo before, the last session is usually a very moving time. And so um, thanks for being here. Thanks for uh, taking time to, uh, this is the dedicated folks. It's Thursday and it's 845. So that means you really love Jesus and you really want to learn stuff. So thanks again for being here. Um, my name is Daniel Yang. I uh, direct an institute called the Church Multiplication Institute at the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center. And um, my colleague over here at Decry, we uh, work uh, with with several organizations to help them think through better uh, evangelism and church planting in particular. And so uh, a lot of the work that I do is I work with church planting leaders, some of you in the room here, uh, and we think through uh, things like demographic changes and then also cultural shifts, uh, best practices in church planting systems, all those kinds of uh, things. Uh, and But in particular, what uh, my institute's been looking at uh, specifically is uh, how do we engage the next generation in telling the story of mission in a better way that's compelling to them. And so instead of trying to retrofit a narrative that was, uh, for many of us, was the motivator for us to go into church planting or mission or some kind of church leadership, how do we create the um, platforms or the environments that uh, invite younger leaders to hear for themselves from the Lord Jesus about why they should be engaging in mission and in church planting? And so if you think about it this way, we all tell ourselves internal stories of why we do what we do. Uh, and it is the Bible, and sometimes it is the voice of God in our lives. But it's also this kind of social, cultural narrative that forms why we do what we do. Um, you know, I want to uh, win the city of Cleveland, you know, for Jesus. Or, you know, I want to see, um, you know, multi-ethnic churches planted for reconciliation. Some version of that. None of that comes directly from scripture, uh, but it is some social narrative that you live in. And so a part of what we have been uh, at our institute, in particular Church Multiplication Institute, is how do we create the environments where young people can discover what it is that is socially, culturally mobilizing them, motivating them into mission and church planting. So uh, that's a bit of a background. Um, I think we're going to try to fix this. Um, If anyone has a seizure, man, I I hope (laughs) that you have good medical coverage. Uh, but um, uh, the, this particular workshop is provocatively uh, named Deconstructing uh, Church Planting for a Deconstructing Generation. This whole track specifically has been focused on faith, mission, 
and uh, Gen Z. And again, it's uh, Jesse who started this out. If you were here for her workshop, she really talked about the journey of discipleship. Uh, Melanie Clark, if you weren't here yesterday morning, um, did an amazing job talking about simple churches on college campuses that are predominantly led and composed of Gen Z. Uh, Rick Richardson, my colleague at the um, Graham Center, uh, talked about his latest research on Gen Z motivators uh, for spirituality and belief. And uh, we're, we're sort of ending our track on talking about this project of, you know, how do we actually deconstruct the system of church planting? Uh, and I won't give you solutions, but what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to provoke your imagination for better models and motifs to talk about church plantings that won't repel the next generation. We're going to talk a little bit about how some of our uh, very masculine understanding of church planting, which for me, again, was what drew me into this project of mission and church planting, how that very masculine language can, to some people, repel people from mission, right? So that's just one idea of it. Uh, So in some ways, I want to give you a trigger warning. Not because of the screen necessarily, uh, but also because um, I don't know where your journey is at. Uh, I would imagine that for some of us, your faith has been uh, uh, like mine on its own journey. And so, you know, my relationship God with God is complicated at times. Sometimes God and I aren't on speaking terms. <laughs> and uh, uh, in particular, if I think about, we'll come back to that in a second, what it was like for me to be at the age of 25, I mean, think about that for yourselves. Like, what was being 25 like? Um, you know, there there was a, a, a sociologist that came up with this idea, this is about 40 years ago, about the quarter-life crisis. You all have heard that, and it's kind of the idea of finishing college and then not knowing what, what's next. It's this idea of, like, what am I supposed to do with my life? And for, I don't know, I, I don't know how it was for you, uh, but my quarter-life crisis was very unique because I got married at 19, my wife Linda here with me, uh, and we had our first child at 21, and then by the time I was 23, we had our our, our, our suburban house, we had a, literally a suburban, my, I, I was driving my dream car, uh, a Yukon Excel, which is kind of, you know, the, the same thing as suburban, and I was uh, in software um, at the age of 23, in some ways I had peaked, and that's probably true <laughs> as I look, look back in the last 20 years of my life, I'm 43 now, uh, but 23, I really had no real like vocational dreams at that point because I had accomplished what I had set out to accomplish, including having a spouse, including having you know a, a decent home and in uh, a vehicle, and then we had three children. And uh, what was interesting at age 25 here is um, this is kind of if you, 25. I w- this would have been uh, 2002 or 2003 for us. So it was the it was at the very beginning of the 21st century. So I came into my quarter life crisis at the turn of the century. And um, this <laughs> this is a horrible picture of me. My wife looks beautiful. Um, I was actually probably 24 in this picture. And I was deconstructing my hairline uh, at the time. So my hairline was deconstructing pretty rapidly. And um, Lynn and I had already at this point, uh, again, started having our children. Uh, at 25, we had our third children, um, a third child. And... Um, 
But it was probably around this age, 24, that uh, so I had grew up in church um, and was very involved in church leadership, was very involved in um, uh, uh, developing young people, discipleship. I, uh, I would say in some ways, uh, I, in our church, we were model uh, co-vocational ministers. Uh, my pastor, who uh, was an amazing leader, he, you know, he, he was full-time pastor. And I was his uh, part-time assistant. Um, I was still an engineer at the time. He would say, "I'm good for something. You're good for nothing," because <laughs> I was getting paid nothing to do this work of ministry. Uh, but we were just really excited about ministry. But it was probably at the age of 24 that I began asking questions about faith in in church. You know, and, and this is probably not uncommon. And I think a part of the reason why I started asking questions was because uh, we had gotten to a point in our lives in the American dream that like we had achieved a certain level of comfort. Uh, I grew up in inner city Detroit, so uh, most of the people that I grew up with, we were trying to get out of the city. And so we finally got north of 8 Mile. If you've seen the movie with Eminem, 8 Mile, we finally made it out. Um, and so in some ways, uh, I don't know if I got bored. I don't know if like life got simple. You know, Maybe it was the David and Bathsheba thing where David is supposed to be at war, but he's not. Uh, now, I wasn't looking and creeping into people's windows like David was. Um, but at 24, I started asking questions about faith. And it was uh, a two-year uh, journey of deconstruction for me. Uh, and I find that this is a, this is not a new pattern. This is you know, the idea of getting to your mid-20s, especially if you grew up in the church, you know, because you're fully now disconnected from, like, supposedly, although uh, adolescence is being extended to age 25 now. Um, at that point, like, I felt like I was now able to deal with the questions that I had always kind of was able to push away. Uh, questions about why, how does the church operate the way that it does? Uh, is the Bible really what it says it is? What about my Muslim friends? Uh, what about my dad was the first Christian in the history of our family. So think about this. My dad was the first person with my DNA to name Jesus as Lord and Savior. So I had tremendous questions about what about my whole entire ancestry? Like what happens to them, right? And so these were questions that I think I, I was not intellectually prepared yet, uh, maybe even like financially prepared yet. You know, I was still operating at a very survival level, if you believe in Maslow's hierarchy. Uh, at age 25, I had enough free time, I guess, to, to then question the things that I thought I really stood on. And that whole pattern, I think, is not uh, abnormal. Uh, again, the reason why I put a trigger warning is in case you have a similar story, you understand some of the yanks. I remember at one point, uh, Lynn and I were um, in my bedroom, and I don't think she understood why I was freaking out so much at the time. If you were to ask her, do you remember the season of life, I, she'll tell you, I, I remember some things. Uh, hey, man, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Um, 
And I remember uh, being upset and saying, hey, I was saying in my head, uh, if I left Jesus in the church, I would never leave my wife and my children. Um, but I felt like also, what if the rug comes out from underneath my feet, right? Like I'm, I'm literally having this conversation in my head because I'm drawing out the trajectory of what if I leave my faith in church, the church that I've you know always known, how does that impact the rest of my family life, right? And so this is a, it was a very real kind of, and uh, it was uh, April of 2004, it was the week leading up to uh, Easter. Um, now, up until this point, um, I, I would say I was pretty atheological. I was very practical in ministry. I was very involved in local church ministry, but I was pretty atheological, meaning that like um, I wasn't against theology, but I just didn't have a lot of theology. And so I read maybe a Max Lucado book, which is good theology, by the way. I'm not saying that to be condescending to, to Max. Um, I've actually had some time and have been able to uh, let Max know how much I appreciate the early entry into um, theological reading. Um, but I maybe had read Traveling Light at that point. I'm not quite sure. And um, so I'm doing research as an engineer. Um, so I'm an account manager at a, um, a pretty significant uh, technology company. And I'm doing research during lunchtime about the resurrection of Jesus, right? So Because this is where I'm at in my faith. <laughs> And um, I remember devouring like our, the all of the RZIM stuff. Um, um, are we still allowed to say that? Okay. So I was I was I was listening to all the Robbie stuff, and then. Um, I came across a website. It was ntwrightpage.com or something like that. And so I had no clue who N.T. Wright was. But I was reading up about the resurrection. So if you Google the resurrection, of course you're going to get N.T. Wright. And so I'm reading all the N.T. Wright stuff on, on his website. And then I find it at the time, he was the Bishop of Durham. So this would have been 2004. Bishop of Durham is third in line uh, in the Anglican Church. You have the Queen. You have the Bishop of Canterbury, I think. Any Indians in here? Am I totally messing this up? I think it's the Bishop of Canterbury and then there's the Bishop of Durham. Is that correct? Let's pretend it's correct. Are you Anglican? Not Anglican. Okay, all right. We all do. Especially if you're Southern Baptist. Sometimes you pretend you're Anglican. <laughs> um, I don't know if that's right or not, but let's pretend it is. But, you know, it's NT right, y'all. So, uh, and he was still very influential um, uh in the and he still is uh, in the Church of England. So I shoot him an email and I ask him tons of questions. I mean, like, what about the destiny of those who have never heard? You know, um, uh, what about you know um, my non-Christian friends? And then what about those who? And I had at the time read up a lot about. There's a book that I read called Losing Faith in Faith, and that was a very interesting book because this was about a guy. Who wrote? If you grew up in the Maranatha days, does anybody are you familiar with Maranatha? I can tell by your uh, hair color or lack of hair color if you knew Maranatha or Hosanna. So there is a gentleman who was a chief songwriter of Maranatha music, and he later became uh, an atheist, uh, and he is leading, continues to lead. He has, he literally has uh, Dove and Grammy awards for writing Christian songs. Um, you know, you, we think all these uh, Christian music artists that are deconstructed now is a new thing, but it's not, right? 
And uh, so I was, his book, Losing Faith in Faith, was, was interesting. So I'm asking N.T. Wright all these questions about, like, uh, faith in, in church. And then, uh, again, have no clue who he is. In the week leading up to Easter, he responds to my email. I still have it in my inbox. Uh, Tom Wright. Um, and um, he, I ask, he, says, You're, he says, you're asking too many questions. <laughs> he says, I'm afraid I won't be able to ask to answer them. He says, but you need to ask yourself, uh, either the resurrection happened and it must mean something, or it didn't happen and you can be on your way, which is a very British response, right? Um, and N.T. Wright, he didn't solve anything for me, but he just, he just gave me something to put my hat on, you know. Um, you know, others would say that the resurrection is really the, the linchpin of the gospel. Um, but I think what N.T. Wright did for me was he just, he gave me just one thing to focus in on. And um, I began to at least reconstruct like my personal understanding of the Bible, the historicity of Jesus, and then asking the question, if Jesus has some semblance of who the Bible says he is, then this project of the church must mean something in the world. And so that was kind of my journey back into what eventually led into a journey into theological education. I was an engineer at the time um, and still very felt called to be something, uh, even if it didn't mean being a vocational minister. But in 2006, uh, two years after my email from N.T. Wright, started um, uh, a seminary uh, um, um, journey. I wish I knew there were better ways to get a theological education than, and then pay for a seminary education, but um, I was making money at the time and stopped making money shortly afterwards. Um, and that began my journey to uh, really begin saying, you know, could we do church in a way that makes more sense? And that led me to more of the missional movements uh, stream, eventually uh, connecting with guys like Alan Hirsch, who have been, you know, tremendous he- uh, heroes of mine. That was that was my journey from 25 into what eventually became, uh, you know, a 30-year-old planning churches. Um, and I would say that, like, um, that that trajectory is not an uncommon one. Uh, it's a, you know, mine mine is a story, and uh, I wouldn't pretend to think that you all have gone through the same thing, but you all have probably known people who are going through the same thing. And there's something about the age of 25 uh, that or that that season of life where deconstruction is just a popular thing. This is not deconstruction is obviously not a new thing. If you read Soren Kierkegaard, uh, most of what Kierkegaard is writing about is a deconstruction process of the Lutheran Church of the time. It's a social critique on uh, the need for the church to reform, right? So these ideas um, have been, um, uh, you know, it happens in different ways in different generations. But as I talk about 21st century apocalypse, the unveiling of American evangelicalism, that's kind of really one way of thinking about deconstruction is that uh, I use the word loosely. I know there's other more technical ways to understand deconstruction. Um, but I think about deconstruction in some ways as an unveiling process, an apocalypse, a revealing of uh, American evangelicalism. And 
uh, in the 21st century, it's had different versions. And what I, what I want to take us to is that what 25-year-olds are dealing with right now has some continuity with some of these older, you know, uh, age cohorts, but it's also a little bit different and new. So if you were to study just the literature, and the literature that I'm drawing from is going to come primarily from American evangelical circles. So if you grew up in um, an immigrant church like mine, this may apply to you less, but you'll have some version of it. If you grew up in an yeah, Amy church you're gonna, or a Kojic church, this is not going to be your uh, direct uh, history or tradition, but you're going to have your version of this. Okay? So I'm taking American evangelicalism and their literature base, and I'm just kind of walking through some of the distinctions of what deconstructions look like. And so as you think about like the early uh, 21st century, there's a guy named Darrell Guder, who uh, is uh, a really big part of helping to launch like the missional church in the U.S. at least. And, uh, you know, there are ideas that Guder was talking about in the late 90s and um, gospel in our culture um, folks uh, really came out of Leslie Newbegin. Some of these folks, they weren't just deconstructing um, uh, the church, but it was the whole idea of, like, is our understanding of God proper? Because, um, and so you get into the whole idea of the Missio Dei, and that was very much a reframing of church, not around worship gatherings, but a reframing of church around mission. And some would say that Guder and others like Guder were, that was a very positive deconstruction of the church, because it was actually getting us back on mission. And so... And then you get a guy like Brian McLaren. Is does anybody familiar with McLaren? Yeah, he's kind of having a little bit of a resurgence now. Um, but McLaren would have been uh, maybe a div- uh, not so different from Guder, but he would he would have landed in, in a different place than Guder. And uh, some would say that he wasn't just deconstructing forms of church, but maybe in deconstructing uh, our theology itself. And so he was trying to do that from an evangelical center, and eventually evangelicals put it, pushed him to the margins, or maybe he self-selected himself out of the center of evangelicalism. This is not my journey. Like, I understand this conversation. I understand what happened. I understand that for many of you, you were actually very active during this season. Uh, guys like Hirsch and Tim Keller and uh, uh, the person that should not be named in these circles anymore because of a podcast that was about him, uh, they would have been <laughs> very much a part of the stream, um, and they ended up in different like locations than... Um, than McLaren, but again, this was like this early version of 21st century um, um, deconstruction. In African American churches, that would have looked differently. It would have uh, felt a little bit different. Um, you know, there are a lot of uh, different stories about uh, the black deconversion, and that's a very rich, sacred process as well. Uh, in the immigrant church, um, you know, uh, and I, I've noticed this with my Muslim friends as as well, because they have a deconversion, deconstruction process as well. A lot of it has a lot to do with like American identities. As a matter of fact, uh, with uh, the resurgence of the black Hebrew Israelites, a part of the reason why that's resurging, and even the nation of Islam to a certain extent, is because American Christianity is so tied to Americanism. And so for, for those who are from immigrant or non-white, non-American roots, the resurgence uh, Surgence of these other kind of nationalistic type movements is actually a draw. Does that make sense, right? And so, if you grew up in a Christian household, but then there people 
were telling you that's not uh, that's the you know whether it's the white man's religion and I grew up in a culture that would say Christianity is a white man's religion like my I have uh, uh, relatives that still think that we follow white man's religion um, and so uh, you know there is a community of Christians that have or people who grew up in the church that left Christianity and have become either Muslim or some other thing. Which, what's, what's interesting is that you also see the deconversion from the evangelical church in the other direction. Because there is a strong, well-worn pathway from evangelicals to uh, Catholicism right now, and also to uh, the Orthodox Church. And so Hank Hanegraaff would have been probably the one of the primary voices that people knew from evangelicalism that went to Orthodox. Um, but so, um, I'm digressing here, but I guess what I'm trying to say here is that uh, there is this version of deconstruction. And in some ways, it gave birth to things like the missional church movement. Like it, it, it was this process right here that we have two, two or three rooms over, uh, guys like Hugh Halter, guys like Alan Hirsch, um, uh, just really important figures in my mind of some of the things that we talk about here. Uh, but that would have come out of this time. Uh, Forgotten Ways was published right around 2006, 2007. The Shaping of Things to Come would have been 2004, right? So they would have been, in some ways, coming out of this deconstruction on the other side, missional church movements. Um, deconstruction pre-2015, I don't have, like, these are my time markers. I mean, as I understand like the literature and the books that are being written, if you were to look at, let's say, 2010 to 2015, this would have been uh, the mid to older millennials who are basically saying we're not coming back to church. So with boomers and Xers, you had this thing called the boomerang effect. Have you guys ever heard of this before? Right. So you grew up in church, you leave the church as a young person, and you come back because you have kids. Right. So um, this is a part of the reason why suburban churches uh, and uh, the explosion of mega churches happened, because boomers and Xers started coming back to churches because of their for their children. So if you were to study sociologically, why do we have so many mega churches led by Xers? Uh, part of this is because Xers and boomers uh, saw this phenomenon of the boomerang effect. Uh, when you begin looking at millennials, you realize that the boomer, boomerang effect is not as prominent. So millennials kind of left the church, and they just have not really come back in the same way. Uh, Ryan Burge uh, is a is a demographer, a social scientist out of Eastern Illinois University. Uh, he probably has the best data on this stuff. Burge, B-U-R-G-E, uh, and he, he's been analyzing these trends from the um, GSS, and he's also affirming that millennials aren't coming back um, uh, in the same way. So, um, Rachel Held Evans who was, a, some of us would say she was a very prophetic voice to the evangelical church. Uh, oftentimes misunderstood, I, I think. Uh, oftentimes unfairly characterized. Um, but, and then, uh, you know, unfortunately uh, died way too young. I think she passed away, was it four years ago? Might have been. And so she, she would have been um, maybe 41 or 42. She was a year or two younger than me. Um, so an older 
middle middle aged uh, millennial. And um, she wrote this book called Searching for Sunday. Anybody read this book? And um, I don't know why I'm getting emotional. I, I, I didn't know Rachel personally. But when she wrote this book, it became like she named something for millennials. Um, and she, it was in some ways, she wouldn't say this, and I'm being recorded, but it was like, in some ways, it was like she was like giving the bird to all the things that, that bothered her and her generation about like the, the system of church. Um, and, but she did it in a, I thought, a beautiful way. You don't have to agree with her, but she did it in a beautiful way. Um, and she did it in a non-masculine way, which I think um, part of the reason why people didn't hear her was because of that. So think about that. Some people actually chose not to hear her because she did not speak in a masculine way. Um, from the, she was writing this probably as an insider at this point. I don't know. She may have. I don't think the term ex-evangelicals was very prominent at the time, but she would have very much been an ex-evangelical. Um, and then her deconstruction, what she represented, and what millennials represent, was less of this like theological deconstruction. Yes. Oh, okay. That was Siri. Okay. <laughs> I, I thought Siri is about to object to uh, my analysis, which I'm not opposed to. <laughs> which, by the way, I believe about 75% of what I'm saying, okay? So <laughs> there's a lot of room for debate and argument here. So, um, um, Siri messed me up. So, she, uh, she, uh, she was writing this from uh, an insider's perspective. Uh, Josh Packard and uh, his, his, his group of researchers wrote a book called Church Refugees. It, it probably didn't take off as big as uh, it, because it was a sociologist's work and so. Um, but they, they did a, uh, a study on why uh, young people in particular were leaving church. Josh Packard now leads uh, Springtide Research. And so if you want some good data on young people in faith, uh, Springtide Research, they do an annual report. It's called the State of Young People and Religion. They don't just look at Christians. They look at uh, Muslims and, and Jews as well. Um, but that's an annual report that they do uh, every year. And um, But before that, uh, he released this research. And it gives you some interesting stories. Oh, I remember what I was saying. Millennials tend to have less of a theological deconstruction, and it's much more of a experience. It's an experience base. Like we now feel empowered to name the things that we experienced growing up in our church, right? And so it wasn't that like uh, Xers weren't naming that. Uh, I think Xers were naming that to a certain degree as well. But at least in the writing, much of the writing reflects more of the theological deconstruction. Millennials were very much like, um, uh, and I would say maybe it was an extension of the theology, uh, but theirs was more of an exile experience. It was more of naming things that they could no longer uh, allow to go unnamed. And again, Rachel Held Evans, I thought, did a beautiful job of doing those things. I don't agree with her theologically in a lot of things, but I agree with her posture in, the, in her prophetic voice um, so that would have been I think in some ways 2015 I think Rachel wrote her book in 2014 
And then uh, bringing us up to speed to, um, you know, 2020, uh, the last few years, um, again, I believe 75% of what I'm saying. <laughs> so what I'm hoping to do is create some kind of framework for you and you fill in the blanks. Sorry. You can go back home and um, debate this or, or, or do better than me. But you start seeing, like, um, uh, Jamar's book came out, I think it was, like, 2019. It blew up because of George Floyd. Um, but, um, and then, uh, um, Kristen Cope-Zemay, her book was not yet ready to be printed, but, um, 2016 was just a crazy time. And then we launched right into the pandemic with all of the political unrest. And so Jesus and John Wayne comes out. I'm not saying that they started this, but what I'm saying is that what they were writing about is this reflection of deconstruction that I would say, you know, uh, again, younger Xers, older millennials, and it's, it is now in the psyche of Gen Z. This is where I'm going. This is now in the psyche. It's in the backdrop. It's in the foundation of Gen Zers now. That the deconstruction is more about systems and structures. It's more about a historical analysis of how did we get here? And can we remain here? And so, um, it's, it, it, this in some ways is a more, um, I don't want to say just an academic. They're both writing as historians. Um, Jamar would have been socially located for at least a while in evangelical culture. He would have been Reformed Presbyterian, although he's African American. I think uh, he would no longer identify as Reformed Presbyterian. I think it was a, a small black church in Mississippi. Um, and then Kristen Copes de May, I think her she grew up Southern Baptist in Iowa, but she is now very much um, in a Reformed tradition, and so um, they're in Western Michigan. Um, and um, but I think what they present is this historical understanding of how did we get to this point? How did we get to how did how did Christians get to the point where uh, some of us were storming the Capitol? Like you know, they're trying to understand these things, right? And they're trying to understand like why would why would why how is it how is it allowable in some people's mind to get to a point where you're waving a Jesus banner as you're storming the Capitol, right? Uh, and I'm not making a value statement, although I have a lot of opinions about waving the Jesus flag storming the Capitol. I'm not making a value statement. What I'm saying is that these are the things that they're trying to understand, right? Um, and why is there so much like clout still uh, from American evangelicals? And so they're trying to get at that. And the importance of what they're writing about is that this is the psyche, this is, in the, this is the, the framework for how Gen Z is now entering into their deconstruction. Every generation of Christians have a version of deconstruction. Um, and so this is now being formed in the mind of Gen Zers. So uh, let's ask the question, what happened between 2015 and 2023? I want to throw that question out to you all. What happened between 2015 and 2023? The pandemic. Huge. The multiplicity of pandemics. The multiplicity of pandemics. Unpack that a little bit more. Don't be shy. Uh, I pastor in D.C. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the context of reading around the Black Lives Matter, mm-hmm. environmental racism, yep. um, health pandemic mm-hmm. in particular. Yep. Those three that my dynamics. Absolutely. Yeah. Leadership, the church leadership that was looked up to that failed. Yes. So a lot of distrust was built. 
Yes, I, I mentioned or exposed. Yeah, yeah. I, I mentioned uh, Ravi Zacharias, and I come from the same uh, tradition that Ravi does, Christian Missionary Alliance. Uh, so I say this with a lot of sadness, but behind Billy Graham, there was he was the the most well-known evangelical figure. And so we can't sleep on the fact that how much impact, you know, his 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 tarnished legacy has. So I used to kind of believe in news outlets and now I filter everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that this period intensified that please for me. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. I would say the Weaponization of the cross, mm. weaponization of the church, and using Jesus as a mascot mm. for political gain and political football, uh, spiking. Yeah. Or selfish anger. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Yep. Very prominent. Two very polarizing elections. Absolutely. I don't have anything helpful, but would you mind terribly moving a little closer to the mic? Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. I'll speak louder. The mic is for recording purposes. There's actually no amplification, but I'll speak louder. Okay. 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 Yes. Okay. Yeah. They're having a great time. I promote everything they're saying. Uh, okay. I'll, I'll try to speak louder. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, no. Thank you for asking. Thank you for asking. Brexit. Brexit. Huge. That, that represented uh, a particular phenomena. Nationalism is not just an American issue. You're seeing it in France. You're seeing it in parts of Africa. You're seeing it in parts of Latin America. What happened in Brazil a few months ago, you're seeing this in Asian countries. Uh, the rise of nationalism is across the board. What about the rise of AI Especially now that we know what these things are actually recording and doing. Very, yeah, very interesting. You also bring 2015 back to 2008 with the election of uh, Barack Obama. Mm. Say more. Yep, say more. Um, I think that's when it really began. The how the media, you know, Yelp is coming out now and mm-hmm. um, social media is on the rise and keyboard assassins, if you will. Yeah. Blogger. Yep. Uh, no filters. Uh, Twitter's new, Facebook's new, coming out of MySpace, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, that was a pivotal point because it created a. Uh, everybody was cool for the first administration, and then all of a sudden, things took a shift. Right. Yeah, absolutely. In some ways, I'll I'll frame it this way. Some people said MTV elected Bill Clinton, but then Twitter elected uh, Obama, but it was also weaponized to uh, uh, 
to portray Obama in whatever way people wanted to portray him. So, yeah, absolutely. In that. Yeah, overdose on eating uh, better. Uh, there's a lot of new sales resistance uh, in the American public where people are just basically are tired of changing, afraid mm. of change, exhausting mm-hmm. them, and they're just throwing up their hands and say, I just want to survive and give you space to find out if I have spring to change sometime in the future. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Maybe one more right here. I think uh, this whole cancel culture. Yeah. Yeah. The biggest thing for um, we are experiencing that now in Boston uh, with our sister church, is it called Shan? You know, we all talk about diversity, but we don't live like you know, not the same thing. Yes. Yeah. And then for people who have a very public vocation, it creates an, it's hard to say things now, right? There was one more over here. I want to make sure. I was going to say, uh, for better or worse, deconstruction of the family system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Gen Z, I mean, this has always been the climbing trajectory, but Gen Z is now uh, the generation of cohort that is most likely to be born in a uh, single-parent home or in a divorced family. So um, come back to Damon's point about uh, technology. Jonathan Haidt, who's out of uh, NYU, I believe. NYU? Columbia? NYU. Um, he's a, a, a political scientist, a social psychologist, and he wrote an article about the rise of uh, anxiety amongst Gen Z. And he said, if you if you track the diagnosis, now are they being overdiagnosed? Remember when we were overdiagnosing uh, ADD um, in children? So uh, there is that particular reality, but uh, it would be hard. Hard to explain an overdiagnosis. He says if you if you study the trends, when you get to 2014, the trend of diagnosed teenagers for uh, mood or anxiety disorders exponentially increases. And he says that um, the only real social phenomena during those years, can you guess what happened during 2014, 2015? Facebook bought Instagram, and Instagram exploded. And so um, in some ways, uh, things like Instagram uh, became a contributing factor to uh, how Gen Z understands themselves. So the idea of FOMO, uh, it began, it, there's an idea of curation of who you are, right? And this is embedded in a 13-year-old little girl, right? And so Height makes a, um, the, the argument that um, we, we aren't fully understanding how much social media is shaping uh, Gen Z. So these are some really interesting factors. Sometimes it's uh, it's uh, tempting for us to think about um, Gen Z as a snowflake generation. I've heard things like that. 
But I actually think that Gen Z is actually representing the chaos that they're growing up in. Like, all the things that we named, if I was like 15 years old living in that world, of course I would be anxious. Like, what else could you be? You're not shielded from these things. At least before uh, social media, you at least, it was a delayed effect, and you can choose your news source and get it. But now it's just like, boom, it's right in front of your face uh, as soon as you get it. And I don't blame social media for it. What I'm just saying is that the conditions in which they're growing up, they're just super heightened all the time. And that's why they're always super triggered. And so um, when you have that laid on top of uh, Jesus and John Wayne and the color compromise, like those of us who are involved in building religious institutions and structures, we have to understand that our language and our processes automatically feels like something to an 18 to 25 year old. It's like you're automatically saying, hey, I've got Saul's armor. It's amazing. Why don't you put it on? And in some ways, we have to reevaluate, um, is that the way to move forward, right? Um, I don't have a reflection here, so let me... Let me let, this, is, this is... My job day-to-day is to understand church planning systems, and I've been studying it for six years. And not everybody does it this way, but um, I'm just kind of giving you some basic shapes. Most of you will understand this process. But the goal in church planting for most people are growing local churches. So not a bad thing. I hope that happens more and more. Like We need better ways to think about growing local churches. I don't think that's the only way to think about church planting. But for the most part, I'd say about 70-75% of church planting organizations, this is the end goal. Let's plant growing local churches. If you reverse engineer that, you trace it back, there's a training process that's involved. Not everybody, not every church planter goes through training, but for those who do, they're trained, and I know this statistically, to learn how to cast a vision, build a team, to grow a local church, right? So the, um, I'll say this in a kind of a, a, a joking, fun way, but I love exponential. Like, I love exponential. Like, I'm invested in exponential. But it is a trade show uh, for these things, right? Um, and uh, our best intentions is very much we, we're providing a platform uh, for very good organizations to provide training so that we can grow local churches. So I'm saying this because, number one, I know I'm being recorded, and number two, <laughs> because it's a good thing. Don't hear me saying that this is not a good thing. You Gen Xers and Boomers did a good thing. Okay. Reverse engineer the training. Uh, it comes out of this assessment process. Let me tell you about this assessment process. Um, boomers and Xers, you did a good thing. I feel like I'm going to keep referencing that. <laughs> So the assessment comes out of, uh, uh, if you trace the origins of how we use it in church planting here in North America in particular, you can trace it back to mission, foreign mission boards, uh, particularly uh, with the Presbyterians. And so they adopt, they adapted uh, assessment processes that they learned uh, from uh, companies like AT&T and, and other large corporations because it was a part of a professional development process. And so, um, uh, and if you study, you know, where, well, where did that come from? Like, where did we get, like, where did AT&T get their assessment process um, from? Well, they actually got it from the military because coming out of uh, uh, World War One and Two. Uh, 
uh, America realized that we needed to build up our military, and and what part of the uh, credentialing process of developing, uh, you know, a greater uh, you know expansion to multiply military leaders, we needed to have robust systems of assessment to know the kinds of leaders that we needed to lead, um, uh, you know, different parts of the military, and so. Don't hear me saying that like our assessment process is like this uh, uh, this misappropriation of the military into church planting. What I'm helping you to understand is that like in the development of most things, you know, like assessments, our education system, you can you can trace any professional uh, development organization, and they're going to have a very common trajectory. But most of what we've um, conveniently used today. Uh, with with moderate success, uh, although statistically saying that this is this system of doing things is yielding less and less every year. Um, but what, what what we've done uh, for the last forty years, because this this system here has been in place for about 40, 40 years or so, is that we um, we we borrowed this from the military. Like it's it's hard, it's not hard to make the translation from this to the military. Um, <clears throat> I'm trying to find some other kind of like process and vocation that you'd be like, oh, that's that's different. Like uh, my mom's a gardener. I'm going to use this illustration later, and the process of how she learned how to garden looks nothing like this. Right? <laughs> so. Right, so you understand you understand what I'm trying to do here, but this process here uh, is it's pretty obvious that it's coming from a particular like line of thought, way of thinking. Um, and again, boomers and Xers did an amazing job of appropriating these systems for kingdom purposes, and I feel like the the solution is to not tear this down; it's not to burn it down. Um, yes. And when we did that. You should come up here and finish this talk with me. The unicorn. No, no, no. I love the I love the fact that you already drew the uh, conclusion or the 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 line of thought. This this comes from this idea, again, well intentioned, and I I still think here's here's where I, I mean I, I don't I'm not trying to like uh, couch my conversation, and I'm not trying to um, I really think God has used this tremendously. <laughs> Because if he didn't use this tremendously, the work that I've been involved in for the last 20 years like means a little. So a part of me is I'm saying, I was involved in some good things. And we are involved in some good things. So Lord, uh, not less of it, just better versions of it, right? But if you study this, and maybe 70% of what most people are doing here, comes back to this idea that there is a church planter profile, that if we can have the right assessment for it, we can fund usually him well so he can grow a local church. And my, what I'm saying is that uh, 
I'm not saying, I'm saying do this better. I'm not saying burn it down or tear it down. But what I'm saying is that this system, every year, is yielding less and less. And this is the system that we're saying to 25-year-olds, and you will get to lead in about 10 years. And so we have to ask ourselves, like, you know, what, what is it that we're doing? And so for those who are, I'm a, I'm a Zennial, I'm 43 and born 1979. So um, uh, I, I understand a little bit of uh, some challenges of extra leaders and leading extra organizations. But there is a part that's embedded in our organization that that is almost just going to necessarily miss the Gen Zer that's constantly triggered by structures. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, is it their job to grow up and stop being triggered? Maybe. <laughs> but if you tell them that, they're definitely not coming into your pipeline. <laughs> okay. All right. And so there's something about how you lead an organization or a structure or even a local church where at least you, sh- you should at least name it. If you're not going to do away with it, you should at least name it and so that you can do better, right? And so this is why this is an, this is an apocalypse. It's a revealing. It's an unveiling. Um, and so I think it's important for us to at least understand the history of it so that we know as we're talking to the 25-year-old. Now, there, I've, I've met some 25-year-olds that are boomers because so, they're, they're ready to build the platform and the system and the structure for them. And that's when I say, thank you, you should sell insurance. So not plan a church. Um, but the vast majority, my, my children included, if I were to invite them into a pipeline process, they would say, I don't want to be a widget in your pipeline. Um, and so... Um, I, I, I want to finish, and we won't have time for questions. I apologize. But, um, oh, geez, I'm going to get in trouble. So uh, the point here, the point here is um, uh, our system, uh, our system is, is built for a version of this. Right. And... Um, I'm I'm trying to say this in a way that I think communicates well. This is a motif. It's 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 a motif. It's a metaphor. And we we build stuff on metaphors, right? But this person here is drastically different from that person right here. Like if we were to build a process around that, it would look very different. A, a military general versus a gardener, those are two different motifs. This is what I find ironic. We use the language church planting, right? Church planter. But we think about we think about John Wayne when we're talking about and not everybody. Like I, I know some amazing organizations that you're you're explicit, you're 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 saying not this, not this. Um, 70, 75% of us. But we're saying church planters though. We're saying church planting, right? And the reality is that like the future of church planting in my mind, to your point, uh, sister, is that it's probably not about the maverick 
historic leader, right? I think in some ways, and I don't have the solution for this, um, but it's probably something like this, right? It's probably some version. How do we build a system, an ecosystem around this? It's gardens. You know, it's not military battlegrounds, but it's gardens. So how do we get people involved in urban gardens? Right? Um, this is this is where we now sound less condescending to rural America because our motifs that we're adopting now actually feel like it respects the rural parts of America. Um, you know, I'm an urban guy through and through. I grew up inner city. You take me out the ghetto, you can't take the ghetto out of me. Uh, and so I am urban through and through. Um, and I realize how those of us who grew up in the urban church planning world have been uh, condescending towards the rural world. And so language matters. Um, and I think part of this is like, what is our imagination for the future that feels inviting to Gen Z? That doesn't feel like Saul's armor. That doesn't trigger them because you, we're saying we're building an amazing structure and you would be an amazing widget if you came through it. Um, and so I think in some ways, and I don't know, maybe somebody would feel much more stronger than I do. I don't think you burn it down, you know. But I think you, there is this very real sense and urgency that what we're doing actually is yielding less John Wayne's. And so some of us, not everybody, but some of us need to be courageous in building gardens. How do we build gardens? How do we build better motifs, a better imagination, a better a better narrative that is compelling, inviting, that's warm, that isn't success-failure metrics, um, and that actually says that, you know, uh, you're co-creating. Uh, you're not just co-founding an organization, but you're co-creating an ecosystem, and I think that's important as well. Uh, I think Gen Zers will tend to be a little bit more collaborative from that perspective. Um, and so just three points I want to end, and um, I don't want you to miss the last session of Expo, uh, and I want to spend some time praying. But um, how might the church planter profile change for the next generation? I think there are three things. I'm just summarizing here with these last three points. Is narrative. The mission isn't a war against culture in other churches. I will no longer say, when I enter into a city, there are no gospel-preaching churches in this city. Even if that city, and I planted in the city that there were more mosques than evangelical churches, I planted in downtown Toronto, I will not say with condescension that there are no other gospel cities. The, the mission is not a war against culture or Wesleyans or egalitarians or mainliners or Hindus or Muslims. That's not the war. We have to change our missional narrative. What drew folks like me into this was war language. Like it was pushing back the darkness. Literally, I worked for an organization and that was our mantra. We're going to push back the darkness. It was a southern organization. But. Uh, the church planner profile, looking for more than just maverick leadership. And so um, I think um, there is a place for maverick leaders. Like if you got to go against Putin, I'm, I'm going to pick the maverick leader. Like, I mean, <laughs> I might not pick the Gardner. Maybe there's some value in the Gardner. You might need a John Wayne at that point. I don't know. Um, but I'm just saying, like, in this era that we're entering into, it's probably not primarily the maverick leader. Right. It can't only be the Maverick leader. 
And then uh, structure and accountability. The body really does keep score. Which means, what I'm saying is that, not physical body, although the physical body does keep score. I, I have a whole entire story behind that. But the body of Jesus. Young people will write books. Young people will write blogs, post social media. They will do, I have seen young people do Facebook, Instagram lives of spiritual abuse. The body keeps score. And it's going to report out how the body's doing. Like we, this is the new age that we're in. Like the the podcasts and all that stuff that's been going. There's several podcasts right now. Like the, that's the new norm. The body is reporting out that we're not healthy. We need to do better, right? And so I want to I want to use this. Um, I feel hopeful. I think things like Asbury. It's a small thing that I think God can use. But and that's you know I, I was telling uh, I was speaking at the next gen thing uh, earlier this week, and I was reminding this uh, room of uh, young 25 year olds that. Asbury was amazing. Let that be a place to remind you of what you're, what God's called you to, to be. But I said, root yourself in spiritual tradition. The African American church experienced revival for 300 years, and part of its fruit. It's, its fruits were like this: the civil rights movement, true revival is deeply rooted in pain and spiritual tradition. And, um, and and these are the things that we're in charge of. You're in charge of knowing your identity, your spiritual tradition, who you are. It's not convenient sugar Christianity. I'm not saying Asbury's that. I was going to literally drive to Asbury and just do this for like 24 hours if I could have. Uh, so there's versions of that. But um, again, it's it's not a military posture. It is very much a cultivation, a posture of cultivation. So, um, I like to spend maybe two minutes or three minutes in prayer. Sister, would you come up here and pray with me? I don't know your name. <laughs> Janetta, would you mind? I don't want to put you on the spot. I just feel like you knew where I was going. <laughs> and maybe you knew, but maybe Holy Spirit knew as well. And so, I like to... I, like to... I had a... Um... I have been told a long time ago that it takes somebody from one generation who has their foot in one place and the other, another and another generation that can bridge it. And last night I was like, God, I don't know what. I'm going to be 69. You know, and I'm like, but I was a part of that other. I was a part of setting it. And I see this. It's like, God, how do you want to use how do you want to use us so that the Gen Zers and where my kids are are going forward? And like it just like breaks my heart, and I don't know what to do. So I don't know if I can pray. I don't yes, know please. I'd like to pray, and then if you can pray to close us, that'd be amazing. Okay, thank you. Father, thank you for these sisters and brothers that um, made the journey out, not just to this room, but to Orlando. And I want to thank many of you who, you didn't just show up in Orlando, but you showed up in your gender, you showed up in your your skin color, you showed up in your age, you showed up in your tradition, you showed up as yourself. And I want to honor you for doing that because many of you, you didn't know if you can do that. I just want to say, yes, you can and affirm you. But I want to honor those who have gone before us, who did the best that they knew how. 
they were innovators, they were entrepreneurs. And uh, thank you that, Lord, you use imperfect structures and systems. That is a history of the church. But in the places where we now arrive, where we can name things, let us be courageous to name them. Let us be courageous to leave those things behind so that we can give the next generation the bare essentials so that they can uh, build what it is that's most true to them. And so, Lord, we honor the work that we all stand on. We honor places like Exponential. We honor the organizations and the churches that we come from. And then we, But we still say, Lord, please do more and use us to do better. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Dear God, our Father, I stand here and I'm just like amazed at how you have used our generation to help build your church, but that wasn't the end. That was just part of the whole process. Mm-hmm. God, may those of us that are in our 50s and 60s and 70s be willing to put out our arms and say, you can walk here, walk over this, use what we've got, but help us to be those that support for the next ones. Yes. God, your church is alive and well. And yes. It takes all of us to be able to be a part of it together and to humbly lay down the things that we have done that said, oh, that wasn't cool at all. Yes. And God, let them pick up the parts that were good and then build on it so that in 30 years from now we can look back and go oh God it's amazing what you you have done for the generations that are still to come and I know that your church is alive and well Mm. but I want to be a part of that alive and well Mm. I don't want to be a part of the one that is dying and that Mm -hmm. is hurting the others and that is closing the doors so that no one can be what you have called them to be God help us to bind together with all the races with all the mm-hmm. cultures, with all the educational levels, with all the styles, and to say, God, it takes all of us. Yes. It takes all of us to be what you want us to be, to yes. reach the people that you want us to reach. Yes. God, urban and rural, all mm-hmm. of us. It'd be so cool if from this point forward we say, God, look, this became a part where we put the stake in the ground and yes. said, here we are, God. Use us how you see fit and keep us humble before it all. Mm-hmm. And one day, one day, we'll be able to see. Yes. We'll be able to see. God, I want to be a part of that group. Yes, God. I want to be a part of it, however it means I have to be in these last years. Yes. However I can fuel it or lay down or whatever it needs to be. Yes, Lord Jesus. God, it takes us as our humble planting leaders to reach your world. Yes. Thank you, God, that you use us with all our faults and all of it. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Exponential podcast episode. Visit Exponential.org for more resources and join our community of like-minded leaders, pastors, and planters who believe in healthy multiplication.